So I was saying thank you for letting me share with you this morning. Really a privilege and an honor. Thank you so much. And we're, we're going to uh, look at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. We'll do our last little look at the book of 2 Corinthians this morning. Um, really thinking about going to Peter uh, next time. I don't know, about, Pastor, what you think. Could Peter be, for sake of Peter, be sure. all right? That fit in with everything? It'd be all right? Oh, yes. But uh, here, here in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, it's the last four verses, 11 to 14. It says, Finally, brethren, farewell, be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and a God of love and peace shall be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This is our favorite one. All the saints salute you, especially in Russia. They kiss, the men kiss mouth to mouth in Russia. All the saints salute you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Sorry about that. Didn't, I couldn't wait to insert that. Moldova, they kissed on the, I got kissed on the cheek in Moldova, but not yeah. in the mouth. R- Russians do in the mouth. They do both sides. Mm-hmm. Usually, like most cultures, just the, the guy kisses the guys and the girls kiss the girls normally. Yeah. Uh, so... This, this, is a, uh, this last four verses is a call for completion. Um, you know, way back in, in chapter 12, verse 19, I stated, you know, the, this entire section, starting near the end, is uh, like it's the... This is a... This, the, the theme is still the, it's, um, the pastor's concern, what a pastor's concerns are for his church. And in his final farewell, he's still telling us what what he what concerns him. In fact, in some ways, this is kind of a these four verses are kind of a, as you really get into them are kind of a kind of a general summary of everything that a pastor is really concerned about. And as he gives this last final word to, to the troubled church there in Corinth, uh, it's a church he loved much. I mean, he summarizes the concerns of his heart for them, and 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 the the Corinthian church had been under siege. Uh, they were, you know, they were under siege from the world and from the flesh and from the devil, and to say, to say, from all the, you know, all the possible enemies, you know, the world being the, the, the culture around them that was filled with immorality and almost, almost epic proportion. I mean, to, to Corinthianize meant to go to bed with the, with the prostitute. They, uh, they were just synonymous. And their culture had all kinds of sinful defects which had influenced their lives prior to coming to Christ. Uh, which of course continued to be an influence, you know, af- after they were, af- after they were surrounded by them, you know, they, it, they, they were they were also influenced by the devil. Uh, the devil, having spent most of, of his time always in false religion, uh, the devil had, had had brought into the Corinthian church some false apostles, false teachers who were teaching lies, and and and, and many, and they actually had many more lies to teach, if, if they could destroy the people's confidence in Paul. And, and um, they had come to attack the church, and and and, and they had been successful in doing so. And then, and then, of course, there was the attack from the flesh. The people were fighting with their own flesh. People were falling victim to the sins of the flesh, which were things they did before they came to Christ. And so th- this was a church under siege, basically from every possible angle. And and and. <coughs> 
when we've seen them battling the world as they go through and, and the flesh and the devil in 2 Corinthians, well, it's 1 Corinthians. Now, now Paul wraps it up here in these, these four verses. This is his final finishing statement, I guess, at the very end, very final farewell, final summation. He has three concerns for them, and, and you can sum it up in, in these three words. This would be our outline. Uh, perfection, affection, and benediction. Those are the things, the three things that kind of, so, to kind of sort out the last four words. Really, a final a farewell summation. In fact, he begins in chapter verse eleven by saying, "Finally, brethren." You know, some pastors will do finally several times before they get to the end of the sermon. But this is Paul's final, final. Yeah. It's uh, it's at the very end. So, 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 brethren is a term. Finally, brethren is he used in chapter one, verse eight, and chapter eight, verse one, refer to the believers at Corinth. And, and this is a summation then and finality of, of, of the last word, sort of a, a recap of all his concerns. And he brings everything together under, under, under three words, actually. Because these, these three words would sum up what any faithful pastor would want for his church. In fact, these become the goals, if you will, uh, for, the, for uh, our church objectives to strive for in the life of a Christian church. And, and, and so Paul doesn't, ha doesn't have in his list, you know, the non-apparent, like, like he doesn't have prosperity in his list of concerns. He doesn't have success or physical health uh, and, and our comfort and freedom and honor and prestige and things like that. The, the people, all, people often get caught up in pursuing that, even in the church. Uh, Paul has little or no regard for them. He, they, may, they don't show up on his list. And three main things concern him. Again, it's perfection, of affection, the kissing there, and then the benediction, the last verse. And, and, and they kind of overlap a little bit. And, and uh, so far, 13 chapters of a relentless defense of his life, 13 chapters of, of relentless def defense of his apostleship, his ministry, his integrity, including confrontation of the church and straightforward confrontation of the church and straightforward confrontation with, with, of the false apostles who were lying to them. And finally, you come to the end and he gives his final desires. And his last brief summary tells him what he really wants to happen in that church. And, and, and the first word is, is perfection. Uh, and in verse 11, finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, and, and be and, and be of good comfort. Uh, be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Uh, the key to understanding that, that point is that statement: be be perfect, be perfect. Uh, it's a it's a comprehensive statement. It sort of sweeps over the whole the whole verse. I mean, actually, and so be perfect. It, it, it's a it's a it's an important word. Uh, Carter Tizo, it's, 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 a, it's a Greek word that's used very common. It means to put things in order, to put in order. Uh, it, isn't uh, it isn't to be con complete in, in the midst of something is, is, uh, is missing or needs to be added. It isn't complete in the sense that something has to, be, that there's some imperfections uh, to be made perfect. It's, it's complete in the sense that, that you're out of sync, that you're out of order, and you and, and need to be appropriately placed in order. And it could be translated wholeness or soundness. It's, it's a word used to refer to restoring a broken bone or, or, or to reducing a fracture or, or locating a dislocated joint. So I remember the first time one of my granddaughters, I, I'm holding her by the arm and she pulled away and she pulled her shoulder out of joint. 
she's three years old. What do you do with a three-year-old with a joint? It was, it was more for Tremetta for me than it was for her. But it's terrible. But uh, I got it back in, sorry. It, it, it's the same word used in Hebrews 10.5 that's tran translated in our English uh, by the word prepare. It's translated as prepared there in Hebrews 10.5. It has the idea that something is ill-prepared or something is not ready, something is not right, and, and it needs to be further prepared. There must be further preparation before this is to take, I mean, to, to, to the place it needs to be. And it, it, it would be safe to say we could translate it, mend your ways, or calling for restoration, here's what Paul is. And so there are a lot of things in the church that are out of line, out of order, out of sync, out of harmony. And Paul is saying, you've got to get everything back in its proper place, back into place. And, and he encouraged them along that line, um, already at the end of verse 9, he used the same root word in that phrase, all, and this also we wish even your perfection. Get your life in line as a church. Get things in order, that, this spiritual wholeness, and having, having everything consistently in, in conformity to the word of God, and the will of God, that's the idea. So whatever's broken, whatever's out of sync, whatever's out of whack, whatever's out of harmony, needs to be brought into its appropriate place. And, and it's the same thing he was saying to the Ephesians. We wrote Ephesians chapter 4, and he talked, talked about the fact that it's the necessity for the apostles and the prophets and the, and the, and the t teaching pastors or, or pastor teachers and the evangelists, it was for the perfecting of the saints to put everything in place, to bring everything in, into sync, to bring everything into a perfect order. And, and this is the equipping of the saints for the work of the service. This is the building up of the body of Christ. So it comes to a, to a mature man and reaches the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He's, as he says in verse 13, you need to get everything in the kind of uh, harmony that, that was exhibited in the person of Jesus Christ, where his theology and his thoughts and his words and his life were all in perfect harmony. Yes. And Grandma used to say, you know, what you're doing is louder than what you're saying, son. So, uh, where, where, you know, where everything, I mean, where everything he did, everything he was, everything he claimed, everything he believed was in perfect integrity. And, and, and so we're talking here then about integrity, about spiritual wholeness. And Paul's saying to them, look, you, you've got some things to fix. You, you've got some things to correct. You have some things that are out of order. You need to, you, 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 and you, you need to be brought into order. Some, some things are out of line that need to be brought into line. I don't know about you, but that's kind of the way my life has been for me my whole life. Uh, I mean, you kind of go through a whole Christian life being restored, getting things back in line, getting priorities back in the appropriate places, correcting the sins, correcting the error, errors in my life. And that's exactly what the church was involved in. Any church leader knows that who's a faithful with the Word of God, they're, they're given this tremendous responsibility of getting the church in order. And, 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 they're, they're, and they're given this tremendous responsibility of getting the church, I mean, it's a never-ending battle. And, and, and the work all the time to bring the church into harmony with the Word of God uh, and the will of God, that, that's what they, they do. They're, they're much more concerned about the church than they are about the world pastors are, by the way, okay? And, and, and they, they can't fix the world outside. They can't put it in order. They, 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 but they have the tools and the power of the Spirit to, and the truth of the Word of God and the spiritual leadership to do what God's commissioned them to do in the church. And, that, and that's to get the church in line, to put the church in order. And where, where there are errors of theology that need to be corrected, where there are sins that need to be eliminated, where there are vi violated relationships that need to be restored, where there's laziness maybe, 
indifference, apathy, lethargy. It needs to be turned into energy and commitment and devotion and service. That's what pastors do most of the time. Uh, I mean, and, and, and is work to put the church in order, and that's what we people need to do as well as, as parishioners. That, that's why we're instructed in Scripture, if we know someone who's in sin, we're to go to them and, and, and uh, go to the person, confront the sin, and you deal with it, you help them, you restore them, Galatians 6, 1. Uh, and then also in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, I want you to be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment, First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, he said, we want to complete what's lacking in your faith. The whole idea, the same word was used in those verses, the whole idea is of getting things in order, getting things in line in the church. That's, you know, that's a great task, really, for church leadership. That was Paul's great passion here. And, and he, he knew the evangelism was a byproduct. You get everybody's lives right, then evangelism comes next. That's natural. Um, more likely to occur when they're, when, than, than, where, than where they're needed to be. They needed to reject false teachers, the false apostles, reject their lies, reject their heresies. They needed to turn their back on the sins of the flesh, sins of the world. They needed to acknowledge Paul's apostleship and to hear the truth of God and, and, and end all sinful practice, all ungodly thinking. And they needed to start with their own hearts. That's why in chapter 13, verse 5, he says to, to examine yourselves, test yourselves, you know, to see if you're in the faith. Do you know you're saved? And start with that. You start with you. Start make things are, are in order in your life. That's a that's really a consuming thing. If you you know if you when you uh, just keep your own life in order, then then to be concerned about the uh, lives of others around you. I mean, lovingly confront, comfort, encourage, strengthen, whatever. Build, pray for those around you. Praying being, I think, the biggest thing that your people around your lives would be in order, and that the whole church might be in perfect harmony in the will of the, of, 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 of the Word of God. And he says, you need to make all the necessary changes to bring the church into perfect harmony with God's will. And that's a great challenge. And, and pastors don't study the Word just so that they, they, they can preach a sermon that people think is insightful and profound or clever or moving. They study the Word so that they can preach a sermon that informs people about God's will. Pastors teach us about God's will. So we can live by it. And that's what pastors do. I mean, they're always trying to conform the church to the word and the will of God and, and because that's the desire of God. And so God's desire obviously comes through Paul because it was God who had inspired Paul to write this. And this is the faithful pastor's concern. And the church, uh, to be adjusted, that that's to be, I mean, to be brought into line, prepared, ordered, rightly, according to the word of God. God's word, that means it's sound doctrine, sound thinking, sound, sound living. And, and, and th th doing this is an endless task, and it's endless in my own life, I know, in everybody's life. It should, it should be, you know, an ongoing work. And the endless, in, in the circle of people around us, always trying to get them to adjust to God's will. Whenever you try to do it in your family, or, you know, you don't, I don't recommend doing much of that with your spouse, but you try it with your spouse and, and your children. And, you're, and, and, you're, and, and, you're, and with their parents and trying to bring back into line with God's way, God's word, God's will. And that's what we do in the church as well. In order to do that, there are some features that, that here that Paul brings out that, that we need to make that happen. Back in verse 11, there are four. Number one, you see, see that word uh, uh, re rejoice, charate. Um, be of good, you know, farewell. 
um, it's the word farewell there. It's actually, uh, Schofield says it's the word rejoice, and he's right, it's the word rejoice. Um, could, could have been translated fair, farewell, rejoice. It, it does say farewell. But it, it's, uh, some, some, some Bibles have it translated all hail, which was a greeting when you met someone. And, and the reason for that, I mean, the word means to rejoice. And that's, that's what the word means. It comes to, it became a greeting. It started when Jesus came out of the tomb, out of the grave. Jesus said it. And he first greeted his disciples there in Matthew 28, verse 9. The, the scripture says, Jesus says, all hail. But the actual term is rejoice. It's the first thing he said, rejoice. Uh, so rejoice then became the, 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 the greeting. I mean, they heard Jesus the first time when he came come out of the grave. He said rejoice, and that became the Christian greeting. And that was standard for both hello and goodbye. You said rejoice. The Christian community did for centuries. Personally, I, I, I prefer rejoice to, to hello. I mean, to me, hello has no meaning. Uh, I don't even know what the word means. I've looked it up. I still don't know what that means when I looked it up. Uh, it's a greeting, but it has no, it's meaningless. It has no meaning. It's, it's vapid. It's vague. And, I mean, it's not, why do we say hello? It's because it's a tradition, <clears throat> I guess. But the early Christians said something with meaning. They said, rejoice. And, and, and the implication was rejoice because Christ's alive. Rejoice. And, and they, they, they even said it when, when they said goodbye. They, you know, goodbye is a funny word, too. I mean, yeah, I, 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 I know I mean, it means a little more, it makes a little more sense than hello does, uh, which doesn't make any sense. But you know, goodbye means in, in your parting, I hope things are good. And, and, but rejoice is kind of like the Hebrew term shalom. Shalom means peace in Hebrew. And it's, it's become a greeting when you, when, you, when you see somebody, you say shalom. And when you leave them, you say shalom. Uh, and and, and shirate was, was a kind of the same thing. Shirate, when you met, and shirate, when you departed, because joy was essential to the life of the church. He says, rejoice. You, you've got nothing to be dour about. You've got nothing to be defeated about. You have nothing to be remorse about. You have nothing to be down in the mouth about. You know, on, I, my own life, I think, well, you know, God's in charge. I know this is going on, but God's in charge. God's on the throne. This is God's will. Um, there's no, I mean, there's no reason to be down in the mouth. So, I mean, we ought to be characterized by joy. Rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. That was Philippians 4.4. 4. And he repeated it in Philippians at least three other times. He's told the Philippians to rejoice. In Galatians 5.22, joy is the fruit of the Spirit. First Thessalonians 5.16 said that we're to rejoice all the time, without, pray without, you know, without ceasing. First Peter 4.13 uh, says essentially the same thing. It, it's to be a, it's a constant feature of the life of the church that we express joy. Rejoice. He says, Jesus is alive. Rejoice. And joy was a part of the Lord's uh, legacy. John 14, when Jesus was meeting with the disciples in the upper room, he said they had reason to rejoice. In John 15, 11, he repeated, You've got guys that have re you have guys that have reason to rejoice. And, 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 and you, you if you follow joy through the New Testament, our, our joy is, is to be great, is to be abundant, is to be exceeding 
animated, unspeakable, incessant, full of awe. We, I mean, we should be joyful all the time. Now, our, our sins are forgiven. Amen. Our past is dealt with. Our present, our presence under the power and control of the Spirit of God. Our future is secure in God's promise, right? I mean, rejoice. I mean, there's no, there's no vicissitudes of, of life. There's no struggle of life. There's no issue of life. There's no problem of life that can overpower the purposes of God on our behalf. Rejoice. rejoice. Christian joy is not something superficial. Christian joy is the experience. You know, it, it, it's experience bubbling up from deep confidence that, that God is in control of everything. I mean, it just... God's in control. Uh, all's well. Uh, I mean, I just circumstances on the surface change. Okay, <laughs> uh, the surface may be really rough. Uh, there may be a storm, and, and, but way down deep inside, there's this confidence that God is in perfect control, and everything in my life, He'll, he'll bring it in, in good time, His glory in, in eternity, and 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 and. That takes all the anxiety out. Should take all the anxiety out of life. I, I, I mean, why become flustered about anything? And I'm, I'm the guy that needs this morning about here. Okay, God is in control of everything. Every circumstance of life is under God's control. Every issue in life is under God's control for His children, and, and it's all for our good and His glory. Yes. All things are working in that direction. Rejoice, He says. What, what about illness? What about death? What about struggles? I mean, what about economic difficulties? What about the loss of your job? What about disappointment in your career, disappointment in expressions of affection? What about broken friendships? What about any of you? It, it, it can't touch the deep down confidence that God is still in control. That, that's joy. Rejoicing is the bubbling up of that deep down confidence that we're supposed to have. And what gives you that deep down confidence is good theology, good teaching out of the Bible. A good understanding of God's word gives us a deep down confidence, and when it bubbles up, it's rejoicing. That's an act of proper response to the character of God. And, and, and when I understand that the character of my great God that causes, that should cause me to rejoice. Rejoicing is, a, is an act of appreciation for the saving work of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's an act of gratitude for, for the sanctifying work of his Holy Spirit. It's an act of, of, of reasonable thanks for the, sp the spiritual blessings, divine providence, the promises of the future glory, answered prayer. It's, a, it's an act of appreciation for the scripture, appreciation for Christian fellowship. It's commanded over and over in the Bible that we rejoice in something way deeper than some superficial emotion. It's way, this is way deep stuff. And it's essential to spiritual wholeness. It's essential to, to well-being. It's essential to restoring the church to its completeness. And one of the features of this perfection, one of the features of getting everything in order is this pervasive joy, rejoicing. And then there's a second thing here that, 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 that Paul brings up besides joy, and it's in this phrase, be of good comfort, verse 11, be of good comfort. And, and, and here the word is uh, parakaleo. Uh, it, it, it's the, the form here is parakalethesis. <laughs> And, and it's the verb parakaleo. Probably, it could be translated exhorted, uh, admonished, and, and the, really the word here is submission. It should be translated submission. If a church is to get its act together, we're to pull the loose ends together, if you will, for to get things in order, if we're to have integrity and de demonstrate the fullness and the wholeness of spiritual life, 
that, that really should be the measure of the stature of Christ. If, if we're to be what we ought to be, we must have joy, but we must have submission. And, and there must be a character of submission in the church. And, 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 and that it submits itself willingly to the authority of God. To heed all the appeals that are based, based upon the truth and all the calls for righteousness. Paul's saying to the Corinthians, look, if you're going to be the kind of church you ought to be and enjoy the perfection that I desire for you, first of all, there needs to be this pervasive joy. And secondly, there needs to be this pervasive submission to that which is authoritative from the, from the mind of God to you. First Corinthians, he had, he had certainly expressed that to them in First Corinthians 4, 14. He said, I do not write these things to shame you, but, but, but warn you as my beloved children. That word warn, that's, just, that's the word he uses the word, admonish. Just like a father does to a child, you have to learn. You, you could even say obedient submission. Paul is calling the believers to obey, to submit about to the, the authority of the truth. Paul in, first, in Colossians 1.28 said his ministry was all about warning every man. The same word, admonishing every man. That the, you know, the, to bring them under the authority to call to obedience. Titus preached with conviction because Paul told them, you're, you know, you're, you're to speak and exhort and rebuke. I mean, you're to preach with all authority. In Titus 2.15, don't let anybody circumvent that. Uh, and the, the two key words, joy and submission. The third key word here, uh, uh, truth is found in this phrase, of one mind. Be of one mind. And normally we would like to read like one-minded. One we think of people who sort of learn to agree with each other because they make necessary adjustments uh, to what they believe. That's, but it's not, and that's not what this is. The, the key word here is truth. And, and, and the, the first key word is joy, and the, and the second key word is submission. The third key word is truth. Literally, the phrase says, be thinking the same thing. Be thinking the same thing. We, we have the same thoughts. So put it another way, have the same convictions. Put it another way, we believe the same thing. This is a plea for conformity to the truth. Get in line with the word of God that's being taught. Get in line with the word of God. Agree with each other, yes, but agree with each other because you all understand the truth of God. It's not superficial. It's not something on the surface. It, it, this isn't what we, we, well, we want to make, we don't want to make a doctrine an issue because it's divisive. That, that's not what this is. We don't want to have conviction because they tend to fracture things. We, we want to have room for everybody's opinion. So we can't let any, any opinion reign over any other opinion. It's, it's not that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's not trying to find some superficial truths. What, what's talking about here is everybody thinking the same thing about God. Everybody's thinking the same thing about Christ, about the Holy Spirit, about the Word of God. Everybody thinking the same thing about the Gospel. Everybody thinking the same thing about sanctification. Everybody thinking the same thing about God's revelation for the church. This is a unity of truth based on a unified understanding of God's Word. Philippians 1.27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Christ. He says, I, I, I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I want you to be, be single-minded in that you all understand the gospel the same way you, you, and, and you stand for the same gospel. What Paul, what Paul called for in, in Ephesians 4, the unity of the faith, unity of the faith, it, it, if the church is to, is to reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ and Christ is not divided, 
Christ doesn't have five different theologies running around in his, in his mind. He has one understanding of the word of truth. And when he says, be like-minded, he's saying, be thinking the same. It's all built around the truth. In, in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, there's a good illustration of it. I, I pulled it up. <clears throat> Romans 15, 4 says, whatever it was written earlier times was written for our instruction. Uh, he, he referring to the scripture there. Whatever was written in the scripture in earlier times was written for our instructions. So that's where everything starts. Then through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we have hope. And so we study the scriptures. We find there our perseverance, our encouragement that secures our hope in the future. So we, he says, now, may the God who gives patience or perseverance and consolation or encouragement grant you to be of the same mind or like-minded. And, 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 and the, there's the point. The same mind about the scripture there is a standard of truth. That's the truth to be understood. There's a standard of truth to be adhered to. I mean, the Word of God, back, back in verse 8, 2 Corinthians 13, Paul said, we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. This is not mindless submission to some human authority. It's not mindless submission to some panel of authorities. Uh, this is not some arbitrary standard that's established you know, by, by people's whims, by different people in different places. What he's saying is there is a standard of truth. The standard of truth is the word of the living God, and, and we need to understand that to the degree that we are united in truth, that the true oneness that comes from thinking the same thing about the word of God, knowing the truth, that we teach the truth. I mean, there's so much misunderstanding about this today, and it's really it's amazing. If you, if you have a church that's unified, I believe as ours is, um, I thank God for that, uh, for our church. But... Um, Church is characterized by, by submission. I can't imagine there's any church uh, really more submissive than what are those churches. We submit that we believe the truth. Uh, and certainly our, our church is united around the truth. We, you know, we agree on the truth. We agree on the gospel, the truths of the gospel. And, and it's, it, it's, it's what God requires for the wholeness of a church. If, if, if we're going to ever get everything in order, we're going to bring everything into harmony, then we, we have to measure and we have the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, and that is to be in line with the truth. The church in 1 Timothy 3.15 is a pillar and ground of the truth. Sound doctrine establishes the basis for all functions of the church. Perfection then includes joy and submission to the truth. Now, the fourth word is unity. Live in peace. Live in peace. Uh, and peace be with you all. Uh, the key to living as peace is having the same thoughts at church. And one of the reasons the church is so harmonious, the reason the church doesn't split up and fracture all the time, which we have seen before, is because we believe the same things. We have a common grasp on the Word of God, and we have, we have the, I mean, the, the, the common, the, the, the commonality that, 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 perpetuates itself in peace. But when you get some people who start teaching <clears throat> something different, then you create a fracture. So if you're going to live in peace, you have to be like-minded, submissive to the truth, express and join that truth. <clears throat> you know, and after the mind is set on truth inwardly, that's the foundation. The church outwardly has the basis for unity uh, and lives in peace. And I, and I thank God through all, I mean, we've been coming here 30 years. And, and that's what we see in here in our, this congregation. God, I love, I love the Lord's church here and the people. But it's all built on the truth of the Word of God, uh, which is 
the core of which we all believe. And, and then, then uh, it's got a rich, rich promise at the end of verse 11. I mean, if, if you do this, the, the, the God of love and peace will be with you. Uh, what does he mean by that? Well, the, the Lord isn't, I mean, isn't the Lord here if we don't do that? Uh, obviously, God's omnipresent, right? We believe he's omnipresent and he's everywhere at the same time. And, and, and what he means by that is you, you'll know the fullness of the blessing from God, the God of love and peace. God will shower us with his love, shower us with his peace, and that's what he means. As a church pursues spiritual wholeness, as the church expresses joy and submission and truth and unity, the powerful presence of God kind of flourishes. Uh, I mean, you can express it, you can express it negatively, okay? Uh, there are times when God does abandon his churches. There are times. And it's true. God, uh, just like God wrote Ichabod in the Old Testament over, over the temple, the glory of the Lord's departed from Israel. There are times God abandons churches. The best illustration is Revelation chapter 2. The Lord of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, writes a letter to the church of Ephesus in verse 5, chapter 8. He says to them, remember, therefore, where you're fallen. In other words, lots of things were out of order. They had forgotten their first love. And I think, you better repent. You better get them right, or else I'm going to come to you and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Uh, if, if, what I'm going to do, if you don't change, I'm going to come and blow the light out, blow your candle out. I'll end your witness. You won't have you won't have the opportunity to be a witness for the Lord. That's an awful thing when that happens to someone. Put you up on the shelf. That's the judgment of the Lord on the church. That's the opposite of having the love of God and peace of God. By the way, I forget. This is the only place in the Bible where it says the God of love. You know, in Second John talks about he, God loves, but this is only verse in the Bible. He's the God of love. I didn't want to share that before I forgot. Um, so, in, 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 in chapter 2, Revelation verse 16, uh, he, he was writing to the church of Pergamum, and he says, Repent, therefore, or else I'm going to coming to you quickly, and I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. First he says, I'll come and blow out, blow out the light for Ephesus. And, and then to Pergamum, he says, I'm, If you don't get things together, I'm going to move... If you don't move toward perfection, if you don't mend your ways, if things don't change immediately, I'm going to come with the sword against you and I'm going to make war. In verse 22 and 23, is writing to the church of Thyatira, there in chapter 2, he says, where there's no repentance, I'll cast her upon a bed, and those who commit adultery with her in the great tribulation, this was the church, unless they repent of their deeds, I'll kill her children with pestilence. All the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I'll give each of you according to your deeds. I'll come to that church, and if that church is in sin and adultery and idolatry, if need be, I'll kill the church with pestilence. I'll come and blow the light out. I'll come with the sword and fight against you. I'll come with pestilence like a disease. And I know your mind, I know your hearts, and I'll judge you accordingly. Chapter 3, verse 3, the Lord of the church writes to the church of Sardis. This is a church in the, in, in the city of Sardis, a real church. And he said in the middle of verse 3, if, if, if you don't wake up, I'll come like a thief. And you know a thief comes to plunder, to steal, and destroy. And I'll come like a thief, and, and you're not going to know the hour I'm going to come. I'll come to the church, and I'll blow that light out. I'll come to church, I'll fight with the sword. I'll come to the church and bring the pestilence of the church. And I'll be like a thief in the night to plunder you. Then verse 16, he says to the Laodicean church, because you're lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. I'm going to vomit you. 
boy, some serious language. That, that's the opposite of the God of love and peace will be with you. That's, those are the opposite. Paul's saying, look, you, you want the continued blessing of God. You want the powerful presence of God in your congregation. Uh, you better get it in order, uh, you know, or, or you're going to forfeit God's blessing. The Lord's going to come and bring judgment to the church. Uh, so, uh, um, I mean, God, God is love for sure. Uh, but it, again, he's only here, this one place is called the God of, the God of love. Um, and, you know, and he's also called the God of peace, Romans 15, Romans 16, Philippians 4, First uh, Thessalonians 5, Hebrews 13. Just, I mean, to simply say this, God is love by nature. God is peace by nature. Love comes from God. Peace comes from him. He, he, he's both love and peace by nature, the source of love and peace for us. But Paul said, look, I want to tell you to get your church in line in order so that you can enjoy all the fullness and love of, and peace that God has to bring. And so Paul really sought the perfection of the church. Second thing he saw was the affection um, of the church. And that's in verses 12 and 13. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints salute you. Uh, A lot of, some churches practice the kiss on the cheek, and, and uh, uh, it, it, it could be uncomfortable for a lot of people. You know, if like MySpace, stay away from MySpace. Uh, definitely don't want to visit Russia if you're a man, and you don't like that because you'll be f faced with kissing on the mouth. Sometimes there's five and six guys lined up at a time, or you're going to kiss in the mouth. Uh, tough, but. but Brotherly love is an expression of affection given to someone, you know, in the ministry you meet, somebody, you know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. I mean, sometimes, I mean, I've, I've got more lo loving as I go to, I'll, I'll give a hug occasionally to some, some guy that, just a touch, it does a lot for some people. Um, it's an act of affection. He, he, he's not really talking about introducing the morality of, 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 of love, the ethic of love, that, but it's, it's what will flow out of getting your life right. Yes. Uh, in verse 11, you're going to begin to demonstrate this. And, and uh, I'm just going to have to unhook the wagon there. I'm sorry that I didn't get you all the way through 2 Corinthians, but, but uh, thank you for letting me share with you. This last verse 14 got there. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit with you all. This is a triune verse, yes, yes, the Trinity, all three, yes. and 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 uh, we we you, we can't explain it, but we believe it. Yes. You can't explain God, but you can, you can you can believe Him. Thanks for letting me share with you.